The Adventures of Elizabeth Crown presents The Dying of the Light, Episode 2. It started innocently enough. One morning, I found myself in Tilly's neighborhood, and I decided to stop in. After all, the day was sunny and hot, and I knew a swimming pool that would welcome us. We'd spent every other night together throughout the month, and given her love for spontaneity, I figured she'd appreciate an unscheduled visit. The gate was unlocked, and even slightly open. This was unusual, but I assumed there was a reason. Then another surprise. I'd rarely seen a Moon 640 in real life, and this unfamiliar car in the driveway caught my eye. Was it family in from out of town? A business call? Come to think of it, had I ever seen a car parked here before? No one answered my knock, but I'd become such a frequent guest that I opened the door and came inside. The place was deadly quiet. Sunlight poured through the stained glass and printed colored rectangles on the stone floor. I called out, Tilly! Monsieur Sinclair? But the only answer was my own echo. I ascended the staircase to the second story. I'd seen her bedroom before, but only in passing. She was as likely there as anywhere. The door was cracked, and I nudged it farther open. And to this day, I shudder at what I saw. Tilly lay in bed, flat on her back, pale as ivory. Next to her, a machine quietly rumbled. The body was a horizontal cylinder, topped with hoses and gauges. The machine was the size of an oil drum, which stood on stilts and vibrated from the power of some kind of engine. From its belly, a single tube ran along the bedsheets, and a needle stuck into Tilly's delicate arm. She lay there, unconscious, as the stench of burnt gasoline filled the air. I drifted into the bedroom, surveying the scene in horror. Eerier still, the curtains were drawn, and the chamber was dark and gray. The windows were open, surely to ventilate the space, and a summer breeze fingered the drapery. Whatever was going on here, I surmised, it was being carefully hidden from the outside world. Who the hell are you? My head snapped toward the voice. There, standing in Tilly's powder room, was a woman. She was leaning over the sink, drying her hands in a towel. But she froze in place, staring at me with accusing eyes. She wore a weathered leather apron, and her hair was topped with a nurse's bonnet. What's going on here? I demanded, not bothering to identify myself. What is all this? The woman snorted. She flung away the towel and marched toward me, grabbing my arm. I wasn't used to being accosted like this, and I let her escort me into the hall. As brutish as she seemed, the woman turned around and gently closed the bedroom door, so it hardly even clicked. What are you doing here? The woman rasped, ripping the bonnet from her head. Beneath 
She wore a fashionable chestnut bob, and she looked far prettier than she'd first appeared. An ageless woman with brown eyes, both soft and severe. I could ask you the same question, I retorted. What's the meaning of all this? The woman raised her head. She assessed me, thinking, recognizing from my tone that I was no mere acquaintance. She clenched frustration in her face, clearly unprepared to explain herself. I had no patience for it. Monsieur Sinclair, I called out, whirling on my heel. Monsieur Sinclair, are you in? The woman tiptoed after me. Keep your voice down. I tore through the house, opening and closing doors. I had been there often enough. I knew the layout quite well, give or take some nooks and crannies. I glanced into the empty drawing room, the billiard room, the second floor bathroom. I hurriedly descended the staircase, saw the dining room with its varnished, overlong table. And then, on a lark, I rolled back a sliding door. I had never paid this door much mind. Pittsburgh is full of such ornamental passageways, which rumble over their runners like the entrance to a stable. But I gawked at what I saw. The room was sizable, with a handful of cozy chairs lined up. They all faced a single blank wall. All around me, I saw the metal discs of film reels piled into towers. Hundreds of them stacked on tables, sideboards, and even the floor. So it should have been no surprise that, opposite the naked wall, a cinema projector stood in shadow. Its imaging lens aimed at me like the eye of a sleeping cyclops. That's enough, declared the woman, yanking me back and shoving the door shut. We don't have time for this. You have to leave, now. I've met my share of service workers. I grew up with an au pair and I'm well acquainted with maids and personal cooks. There's a way they speak, timid and apologetic, their eyes always aimed at the ground. This woman was nothing like that. She spoke with raw authority. Never had this woman taken an order from anyone, and she expected me to obey. Fine, I said, and headed for the exit. I wanted to say something else, Something like, this isn't over. But what would that mean? What had I even witnessed? In only a few minutes, everything I thought I knew was hopelessly confused. Mount Lebanon is a sleepy town. Until recently, these rolling hills were nearly empty, except for farms and cottages. Were it not for the new trolley line, it might remain a village forever. Everywhere you look, new houses are rising up, their transparent walls wrapped in scaffolding. The point is, there isn't much traffic after sundown. A lone car is easy to spot on a road without lamps. So I resolved to follow the Moon 640 with my headlights switched off. A dangerous practice, unless you know the local roads as well as I do. The butler's name was Jarvis, a docile old man who rarely said a word. At 9 p.m. precisely, 
Jarvis pushed open the iron gate. The strange car eased its way into the street and motored away. I fired up my own engine and accelerated after, keeping a safe distance. I wished I had worn something darker. Even in the middle of the night, my tan suit would be easy to spot, but I hadn't wished to abandon the scene for something as trivial as a change of clothes. I was hungry, too, but I ignored my rumbling stomach. Mere food could not compete with my desperate need for answers. I didn't think about where we were going. I didn't think much at all, actually. One road led to another, an endless montage of buildings and trees, railroad tracks and telephone poles, the scenery nearly invisible in the overcast night. The air was pregnant with moisture, and my skin was slick beneath my blazer and ascot, but the black sky refused to rain. Suddenly, the car turned into a gravel lot. Beyond, a massive Victorian rose above the foliage. Dull light glowed in its enormous windows. Two figures stepped out of the car and shuffled toward the front steps. One was a feminine figure in a black dress. The other was masculine, his body formlessly obscured by a black trench coat and fedora. I waited only a couple of minutes before pursuing. At the main entrance, I saw a sign painted in comforting letters, Peterson's House of Palliation. My God, I thought, it's a hospice. To my surprise, the door was unlocked and I quietly stepped into an empty hallway. The many doors were flanked with still-life paintings, mirrors, little tables topped with flowers. A couple of wheelchairs were parked neatly in the corners. The place felt cozy and warm, not to mention quiet. I stood there, dumbly, uncertain what to do next. I had no idea where the two figures had gone, nor did I even know who they were. The woman I could guess, though she had clearly stripped away the apron. But the man... Who was he, and why hadn't I seen him earlier that day? There was no other entrance to the house, as far as I knew. Whoever he was, he had been somewhere inside, hidden from view. Then, a stroke of luck. One of the doors was wide open. An empty dorm room presented itself, complete with mattress and bedstand. The place was neutral and unoccupied. The lamp turned out. I stepped inside, confident that this little room was consistent with all the others, a tranquil little place for patients to while away their final days. A handle turned behind me. Another door was about to open. Instinctively, I swung my own door back, leaving only a crack. I heard the floorboards creak beneath two pairs of feet, and I wondered how much noise I myself had inadvertently made. How are you feeling? came the woman's voice. Better, came a resonant response. And worse, as always. I stifled a gasp. The French accent was unmistakable. The man, riding here in the mysterious car, dressed like a comic strip spy, 
was Mr. St. Clair. Well, it won't be much longer, the woman murmured. I'm sure of it. The protocol is nearly complete, and the results have been immaculate. Yes, said St. Clair, distantly. Such a small comfort in moments like this. But I know in my heart that the ends will justify the means. You're doing the right thing, said the woman. And whatever must happen, Tilly knows that too. Whatever must happen, I thought. A chill ripped through me. What did that mean? What were they doing to her? And what were we doing in this house of death? My mind swam, frantic and famished, and it took all my restraint not to barge into that hall and scream my questions. But I couldn't do it here. These two held all the cards, and if I faced them, I wanted to come prepared. By the time I woke up, it was nearly noon, and I was slumped behind the steering wheel. I had driven all night, covertly tailing my antagonists. I had watched the car return to the St. Clair home, disappearing behind the gate. But that sojourn was brief. A minute later, the car appeared again, heading southeast, toward Pittsburgh. I don't know how I managed to track that vehicle once we joined the busy streets of downtown, then uptown. But I was captivated now, and I mimicked every turn until we arrived on a quiet lane deep among the row houses of South Oakland. This time, two figures had ascended the steps. One was the so-called nurse. The other was a new person altogether, a woman equally petite. From a distance, in the glum street lamp, I couldn't make them out beyond the backs of their heads. Darkness was their ally. I would have to wait till morning. Here I slept, on a lonely corner, using my bundled blazer for a pillow. I cleared the crust from my eyes, blinking into the mellow wash of sunlight. A middle-class home loomed above me, standing shoulder to shoulder with similar houses. There were three stories and a porch swing. Walking past, I would never have even noticed it. I knocked on the door. When it opened, a skinny young woman stood before me. She wore a pageboy haircut, a stylish dress, and an expression of sheer confusion. She gawked at me, perhaps wondering whether I had mistaken this house for another. Where is she? I demanded. I'm... I'm, I'm, I'm sorry? The woman stammered, blinking at me in disbelief. She moved to the door ready to push it closed, but I jammed it with a shoe. The nurse, or whoever she is, where is she? I, I don't, maybe you should. Now the woman's instincts betrayed her. She turned her head, looking upward. Beyond, I could see a flight of stairs leading to the second floor. Whatever I needed to learn, it was there. I muscled through the door. The girl stepped away, and I was glad. I had no desire to knock her over, but I would have. I felt anger now, a deep and primal rage. I flew up the steps, peered into empty rooms, and burst through the final door. 
where I heard a sound, the unmistakable click of a pistol being cocked. So many sensations occurred at once. The sight of a woman leaning back in an office chair, her feet propped on a cluttered desk. In her hands, she cradled some kind of revolver aimed squarely at me. In her visible teeth, she clenched a hand-rolled cigarette. Just as I entered the room, she exhaled a puff of smoke into the already hazy air. The scent of cannabis filled my nostrils, and I sputtered with surprise. "'That's far enough, Mr. Price,' said the woman, removing the reefer from her mouth, along with stray strings of tobacco. "'Why don't you take a breath?' I stared at her, amazed and petrified. It was the same woman as before, but she looked nothing like an orderly now. Her hair was fetchingly pinned, and her mauve dress befit a society flapper. She looked neither angry nor surprised, only annoyed at my presence. "'Are we better now?' she said. I nodded shakily. "'Good. Why don't you have a seat?' Hesitantly, I moved to a swivel chair and sat down. Behind me, I could hear the other girl appear in the doorway. "'While we're at it,' said the woman at the desk, "'you might as well apologize to my assistant. "'I'm sure you gave her quite a scare.' "'I'm... I'm sorry, miss,' I said over my shoulder, "'trembling like a child awaiting his father's strop. "'I I didn't mean to.' "'I'm sure you didn't,' said the woman, "'letting the gun thump on the table. "'Your friend Mr. St. Clair tells me you're a very nice young man.' and I doubt sleeping in your car all night did wonders for your mood. She knew. How stupid of me. The whole time, driving around the county, I'd thought myself so clever. How long had she watched me in the rearview mirror? I felt so childish, all of a sudden. Even if I'd escaped her notice the first leg or two, I hadn't fooled her in the end. And St. Clair, well, he'd spilled the beans well enough. I was outmatched, and by a woman I didn't know from Eve. I just want answers, I said. I'm sure you do, said the woman, stuffing her roach into an ashtray. Maud, get this man a cup of coffee, will you? Right away, tweeted the girl, and she scampered down the stairs. Now, said the woman, if you want my advice, you'll go home, get yourself a hot shower, and forget this ever happened. I shook my head. How? How could I forget what I've seen? The woman grimaced. Well, what is it you think you've seen? At first, I didn't understand the question. But slowly, her meaning sank in. These events made no sense. They were disjointed, nonsensical. They defied any truth I had ever taken for granted about the St. Clair's. This is what I saw, I growled. I saw a girl I care for, deeply, strapped to a machine, the likes of which I've never seen before. And then you, whoever you are, lurking in her room while she slept. The master of the house was nowhere to be seen, and that, that screening room, the woman offered, 
Yes, the movie theater. And and that car, which I've never seen before. And that hospice. And Mr. St. Clair whispering in the shadows like a damned gangster. And, and... And, said the woman, lacing her fingers behind her head, and what? What do you mean, and what? I mean, indulge me. What do you think it all means? I glared. Why should I tell you? The woman shrugged. Why shouldn't you tell me? That was no argument, but I couldn't help myself. I had spent twenty-four hours in a private tizzy, and the words tumbled out. I think you're taking something out of her, I began, and I think you're using that infernal machine to do it. Drawing blood, I'm guessing. Collecting it. And then you must take it to the hospice. You said protocol. So it must be uh, an experiment. And Mr. St. Clair, he sounded so regretful. So you must be... That is your... You you must be taking Tilly's blood to the patients to keep them from dying. Some kind of transfusion. That must be it. Or maybe, said the woman... I'm drawing blood from all of them, Tilly and the hospice patients. Well, yes, that could be it, too. So which one is it? The woman smiled. Facing that smile, I had never felt so small. I... I, I'm sure I don't know. I'm sure you don't, said the woman. Because neither theory is true. You could guess until your head spins off, but you'll never get it right. And if you're wise, you'll walk away from this whole affair. Never see Tilly or her father again. Find another nice, rich girl and marry her. You are blessed with ignorance, Mr. Price. And if you learn one single fact about this matter, your life will become a great deal more complicated. I say, leave it be. I choked up. I felt the tears welling. I can't. I gasped. I love her. The woman sighed. Well, that's as sound an argument as any, and I suppose I've used it before myself. Well then, I pleaded, what happened? Who are you? I, said the woman, sitting up straight, am Elizabeth Crown, oncologist. You've been listening to The Dying of the Light, Episode 2, written and performed by Robert Eisenberg. Music provided and licensed by Audioblocks.com. For more information about the exciting world of Uncanology, visit ElizabethCrown.net.